certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Today in court, it was revealed how hairs found on the clothes of Kira Glennon were linked to long-time suspect Lance Williams. Welcome to Day 39 of Claremont in Conversation. And Natalie Bongiolo joining you with the West's Tim Clark and Emily Morton. And I found this evidence today quite fascinating. So did scientists suspect that they had found a possible match back then? I think so. I think, well, from what we heard from um, the forensic scientist Martin Blooms today was that um, under the direction of the the macro task force, they were they were they found these hairs, and so they were sort of he said that they were basically asked to match them to samples of Lance Williams' hair, who at the time was somebody who um, police had was a suspect that they uh, suspected of the, of the murders. So he just said that basically they were looking at those samples, and there was I think one or two that they thought they found on Kira's t-shirt and possibly one on her skirt, maybe more, um, that they thought were a possible match to Williams. But as Mr Blooms explained later on, um, under re-examination from um, Brad Hollingsworth, the prosecutor, that the, and I hope I pronounce it right, morphological test or process (laughs) um, that they carry out is Basically, he said in layman's terms, it was a, basically a looking test or it's an appearance test. So they they were only accredited to look at hair samples and under a microscope and to see how similar they were. But he said it was more of a exclusion rather than inclusion. So that's how they sort of thought of that test back then. So an example he gave was that if a suspect had red hair and the hair was black, well, therefore you you would say, no, this is not that person. But then if the hair was dark brown or black, well, they say it's a possible match, but therefore they didn't have the technology or they weren't accredited to then look further into that hair. So that's what he was saying sort of later on, which, but initially when we first heard it, it was like, oh, okay. So back then they, this is why, one of the reasons why they thought it might've been him because they found hair that possibly matched him. So um, that was sort of that part that today, which we will everyone's sort of ears pricked up when that was mentioned. So, and Tim, how did they get this hair from Lance Williams to actually sample? Well, um, it hasn't specifically been said in court that, but we do know that back in '98, um, Mr. Williams was pulled over by the police, uh, arrested, and taken into uh, major crime. We assume and was questioned for a long time, um, uh, 17 hours or so. And during that process, um, he voluntarily gave the police DNA samples and and hair samples. And uh, we are now finding out, um, slowly but surely, um, what the police did with those um, samples. Um, And as Ems just uh, pointed out, one of the things they did do was in 2002, in uh, 2002, 2003, they sort of re-looked at the, the physical exhibits from Kira, picked off some hairs and very closely looked to see if they were a, a, a match to Lance. So he, he, even then, um, you know, five years, four or five years after Lance had been arrested, he was still obviously 
obviously they're very 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 main suspect because you don't do that you don't task you I mean you don't go to all that trouble tasking you know uh, senior scientists to do uh, multiple examinations of, of major exhibits on a, on the major case in the state unless you think um, you might find something so uh, again the, the the scrutiny of of Mr Williams was literally down to the down to the hairs on his head and i mean i always just find it quite um bizarre really that you know that there weren't alarm bells about Lance Williams. I mean, you've got this guy who voluntarily gives his DNA. He voluntarily gives his hair. Um, you know, there's nothing in the tr- tracking of him, and and they're following him for um, you know years and years on end. Yet, is there no alarm bells that maybe this isn't him? Mm, well, I mean, that's that's a question that. That so many people have asked for so many years, not less, you know, not less than Lance himself. Uh, uh, many times, um, when the covert um, surveillance of him basically became over over the years, and, and and police cars were quite openly sitting outside his house for days at a time. He would get served, he would get stalked, he would get um, followed in, in his car. Um, it, it was no, it was, it was. I mean. You'll remember now. It was absolutely no secret that that that, that this was a man to the point where he he was giving interviews um, <laughs> up to to major news networks, including Seven and, and Alison Fran, our good friend Alison Fran. And Ali um, has, of course, talked to us before about that and said that you know he gave this interview that lasted two to three hours, and eventually she was sort of backing out of the door and going, "Okay, well, I've got to go," mm. um, and and saying to herself. This isn't the guy. Yeah. This is definitely not the guy. Yeah, and 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 Ali was felt confident enough to actually ring the police and tell them that um, <laughs> whether they whether they took any notice, uh, it wouldn't appear so because the scrutiny continued right up until the end of two thousand and eight, which, as we discussed um, at the end of last week, that was when the DNA um, went over to the UK, came back, and was then we don't know this for sure, but we can really read between the lines that they ran it um, they ran Lance's DNA against it and it didn't come back and so um, and, and it was right at the end of 2008 where he was officially told that he was no longer a suspect and that be, and that leaked out um, and so what, what I mean we've talked about Eureka moments mm-hmm. many times over the podcast what that moment must have been like to the police who spent mm-hmm. so much time and so many resources um, on this man um, to finally get the DNA hit and then it come back as not the man that you thought it you thought it was going to be um it must have been it must have been a, a massive blow reverse eureka mm. um how is this evidence today actually relevant to the case against bradley edwards well that's a very good that's a very good question that because what this was going to was was martin blooms himself um uh, we discussed him yesterday very senior scientist at path west was intimately involved um, in in work on um, samples from Karakata and, and both the murder victims, but this was Paul Jovich cross examining him on on his practices and and what what we what we gleaned from that questioning was that it would appear that Mr. Jovich today and coming in the days to come or the weeks and months to come wants to. Um, uh, Cast some doubt over Mr. Bloom's um, practices and 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 the collection of these hairs and the um, and, and what he did with them um, and the way he, he did it 
um, it looks like he's going to come under some more scrutiny because at, at, at some point, Justice Hall, um, as, he's, as he's wont to do, um, piped up and said, what, I, what is the relevance of these hairs, particularly a reference to the hairs that were found or recovered from Ms. Glennon's bra when it was being examined by Mr. Blooms and another scientist. And Mr. Jovich, quite, um, you know, revelatory, really said, well, we think we have some mitochondrial DNA evidence relating to particularly one of these hairs of this bra, which will go to Pathways practices and Mr. Bloom's practices as well. And once again, that was another prick moment because, A, we hadn't heard any any of the defence's potential DNA evidence, and B, the fact that it's mitochondrial DNA, which the prosecution isn't going to use at all, um, was again uh, something that, um, that, that, would, that came out of today that hadn't come up before. Yeah. So just to clarify um, the situation with the exclusion of, of Lance Williams, mm. so they were saying it's a possible match, but really it was just that they had similar hair. It didn't yeah. actually identify anybody. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely, and that was made clear through through his Mr. Bloom's evidence that this was this was a visual inspection. I mean, a close visual inspection under a microscope, but still, it was looking at the sample hairs they had from him, looking at the sample hairs they had from Miss Glennon, and then looking from these hair, looking at these hairs that were, they were taking off the various bits of clothing, putting them on a slide, putting them on a microscope, and looking at them. And on at least two occasions, they. Um, put on the worksheet that there was a possible match. But when asked in re- re-examination, Mr. Bloom said, that's all it was. We looked and they were similar. They looked similar. But we couldn't definitely say it was person A, person B, and more testing would have to be done. And he also said, if I got another hair from someone else, not Mr. Mr. Williams, but you know another random person, it might well have looked very similar to the hairs that we got as well. So it was, it was, a, it was an on-site um, site um, examination of these hairs that you know potentially could lead somewhere. But that was all it was. And in terms of you mentioned this mitochondrial DNA, so did they give an explanation of of what that is exactly? And was there any um, uh, talk of how it could come up later? in the trial. Mm, they didn't give an explanation of what it was, but from what we were able to sort of Google in the, <laughs> the seconds that we had between us all, um, from, from what we understand, and um, I'm sure uh, Brendan will be able to clarify in detail tomorrow <laughs> for everyone, um, but um, from what we understand, it traces um, a person's sort of sort of is it matrial line or mother line ancestry. Um, so it basically sort of goes from, you know, to children um, past basically the, the DNA that's passed from your mum basically on that sort of the female heritage line so um, that's how I understand it I think as simply as I can explain it um, but they didn't explain any more well it was I think today was there was a lot of like little tidbits thrown in today and but then again with it, whenever the cross-examination's going on it's always these little bits but then never any more explanation and Sometimes it's like, is it going anywhere? Will it pop up again in a couple of months? Or was it just just thrown in there to, to, to create a bit of doubt, I guess? Yeah. And Tim, you mentioned the items of clothing that the hairs were taken from that belonged mm. to Kira Glennon. Um, were they shown in court today? They were, not, and pictures of them, not the actual exhibits themselves. Um, so uh, the practice of... Uh, 
by that time at Path West was that any any physical exhibit that you were examining, um, you would take a photo of, and then a photo, a, a copy of that photo would be attached to the worksheet. And so that's what we saw today. Um, so there's, there was Miss Glennon's um, shirt, her bra, uh, her underwear, and then there was a skirt. There was a, a drawing done of the skirt, not the actual, not an actual picture. Um, and there was uh, a warning given by the judge to everyone in court, including um, Dennis Glennon, Kira's father, that they, these would be shown on the screens. Um, they were going to be treated as sensitive, but this, the actual the screens, you know, the screening screens weren't up. Um, so that would have, have taken a little bit of time. So the judge was given that they were clothing and no actual body parts were being shown. He said, look, I'm happy to have them shown in court, but please be aware that what you might see might be distressing. And if, if you do think you'll be distressed, then um, this is your chance to leave. Um, and those, apart from a, a brief glimpse of Kira's shirt um, during Mrs. Barbara Gallo's opening, that was the first time we'd seen those for any length of time. Um, and they were, uh, you know, as, as as dirty as you might expect. Um, but they were still, I mean, they were, but they were able to be seen in, in, in quite some detail. Um, and and then the, the examination of them, particularly for the hairs, was gone into in more detail. Was it, um, M, to, to look at them, was it distressing to see? Did did Kira's father stay in the courtroom? Did he? Uh, yeah, he did. Dennis did stay in. Um, I don't think anyone left at, um, at that point. Um, and as we've said all the way along that, um, in such an impersonal setting, when you see such personal items, and I mean, you can't really get more personal than mm. um, a, a young lady's underwear. Um, yeah, it, it does. You just, as much as you try and... Pre- you know, prepare yourself um, for for a day. Uh, you know, uh, potentially hearing distressing evidence when you see these images, it, it does take you take you take you aback mm-hmm. um, for a second or two, realizing that those were the items that that she was wearing on 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 the last night of her life. Another item that Martin Bloom's tested was Jane Rimmer's guess watch. Mm. What did that reveal, if anything? Yeah, that was interesting, Em, wasn't it? We we heard yeah. about another. Um, Another um, potential forensic um, procedure um, that they uh, they use or, or possibly could use. Sonication, um, I think. Yeah, sonication. Called. Thank you, Em. You <laughs> got, got, dug me out of a hole there. Which is the use of, um, as I understood it, the use of, sort of high-frequency sound waves to try and shake loose any DNA material that might be on this watch. And this... Uh, and this was also brought up in cross-examination and this was also pointed towards, as interesting as it was, it was also pointed towards Mr. Blooms himself because the explanation of that was that uh, for some time it would appear that Mr. Blooms had told the police that this process had actually occurred. Um, But it then transpired that it hadn't been done, this process hadn't been done, and it was in an email that Mr. Blooms wrote to a detective to say, good news, it hasn't been done, so this could potentially be another avenue. But uh, Mr. Jovic then pointed out to Mr. Blooms, well, were you in the habit of telling police you'd done something when you hadn't? And uh, it, it really emerged what he was getting at, which was, you know, were you stuffing the police around? And at one point, Mr. Blooms said, are you calling me a liar? Um, Mr. Jovic backed away a little bit from that, but he didn't back away from the main point, which was, um, you know, were you being as professional as you could be and were you being as open with the police as you could be? Then another 
sort of section to that was when they were asking him about the examination of the vegetation collected as well at Jane's um, crime scene. They sort of touched on it um, in relation to one of the samples, which was RH21. In his, in his opening, like uh, Paul Jovic had sort of said that RH21, which was like a piece of um, like a twig or a branch that was found on top of Jane's body at the scene, had actually um, yielded a partial profile from a victim of a crime that was unrelated to the Claremont murders. So he, he, he touched on that, but then sort of it didn't go any further than that. I don't know whether that's going to come up later because perhaps it was someone else who was responsible for collecting that or testing that. We're not really sure So because now we're at that stage of the testing stage. So perhaps there's another witness that that question will be asked of, but that sort of came up um, as well in that sort of line of questioning. So it sounds like the defence today really were uh, quite tough in their questioning of Martin Bloom's procedures and, and practices. Did def- did the prosecution re-examine and come to his defence in any way? Yeah, they yeah. did, yeah. It was a bit of a velvet sledgehammer today. Mr Yovich's style is quite homely, um, uh, you know, quite quite softly spoken. I mean, he's not, he's, he doesn't raise his voice, he doesn't get angry or argumentative, but... Um, he, he, he got to his point pretty quick, and then uh, right at the end, um, he did he, he did come to a quite a quite a um, shocking um, uh, conclusion, didn't he? Uh, yeah, he sort of asked. Um, it was sort of like a throw. I wouldn't say a throwaway line, but it was literally just a few lines at the end of this line of questioning, and he just sort of asked him like if he remembered a. Um, in, two th- in March 2003, if he remembered that WA police asked him to be removed from the Claremont case. And so we were all like, what? And then he said he couldn't remember anything and then he doesn't remember any conversation and then it's sort of left at that. And then once um, Mr Jovic had finished his cross-examination and Mr Hollingsworth had finished his re-examination, Carmel Barbagello then stood up and said to Justice Hall, well, hang on a minute, um, you know, she wants to make a point about Jovic, Mr. Jovic's questioning and, and basically said, you know, was there a point or is there any relevance to that question? Or And, and she described it as, you know, was he engaging in general muckraking? So, um, What was his response to that? Well, then and then she sort of said, like, because um, he, he sort of mentioned that he was relying on some either records of police meetings or emails that um, he sort of, but he didn't. He also didn't want to disclose much more than that. He just said that there was meetings that, that made reference to Mr. Blooms, but Mr. Blooms wasn't included in this correspondence. But then he didn't explain any further. And then, you know, Miss Barbagello was like, "Well, it can't just be some general jibe." sort of said in court. So then Justice Hall was like, "Well, sort of basically said to Mr. Jovic, you know, if he's going to start, you know." introducing evidence about a police officer's opinion of someone else, well, then it's only fair that he asks those or put those claims or assertions to the actual witness. And and Mr Jovic couldn't really say what that was. He said he didn't want to say at this stage. But then Justice Hobble was like, well, the witness is here on the stand. So, you know, it's only fair that, you know, you're sort of making an assertion about his integrity here and he said that you know if he's you know it could be that he goes basically I think his words were that you know there was a concern that his integrity had been impugned and that he's not had an opportunity to address um, 
whatever was raised because he doesn't know what he's actually implying took place. So um, basically Mr Jovic just said that he didn't mean to cast aspersions but that, you know, he didn't want to disclose this um, um, at this stage. And in the end, Justice Hall, he didn't want to excuse... Like, he let Mr Blooms go and let him leave the court but said he wasn't excusing him. So just on, on the in case whenever these police witnesses are called, that if something is mentioned about him, that he has, that he can be called back to respond to those, um, to that evidence. Uh, Tim, how did uh, Martin Blooms take this? Because I guess, in a way, you know, um, it, it, his expertise is being questioned, but there's no actual specific accusation. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was a strange little back and forth just before lunchtime that I've got to say I mean, it, w- it wasn't gloves off bare knuckle stuff between Ms. Barbara Gallo and, and Mr. Jovic but it, it was certainly as as pointed as, as they have been I think during the trial so far and and, and uh, you know Ms. Barbara Gallo was quite forceful in saying well look I mean he said this he hasn't produced any documents to back it up he says he's not going to produce them to this witness, but might in the future. Where, where's the uh, where's the procedural fairness in that? And uh, I, I've got to say, I think Justice Hall came down on, a little bit on her side and said, "Well, that's, a, that's probably a fair comment." So, um, and Mr. Blooms was was sort of sat in the middle, just listening to it. Yeah. Really, um, didn't didn't really say much at all, apart from when he was asked specifically about about these emails. He said, "Well, I wasn't aware of them, and I don't remember them." Um, so whether he whether he was or whether he wasn't, he's still a little, uh, you know, allowed to work or, or, pum, or wanted to work on the Claymont case from that time. We don't we don't really know. He, but we, what we do know is we, he was still employed at Path West mm. for another nine years after that. So there wasn't it wasn't obviously a major um, issue. But um, but yeah, it was it was it was uh, it was a strange little um, strange little sidebar on a, on a day where we where, where you know some new things were teased but not really uh, not really fully fully explored definitely um you know that idea again as we've seen with the living witnesses as yeah. well this idea that something quite interesting is said and you know in the the courtroom you're, ju- you're you know as journalists your ears prick up and then it takes you nowhere and mm-hmm. we're all left hanging wondering what was the purpose of that and will we come back to it yeah yes we go we've had kind of quite a lot of that in the last couple of weeks <laughs> of, of, of things starting but not being finished and uh, obviously we know the trial is nowhere near being finished yet uh, we've heard in previous podcasts about the tests that were carried out in New Zealand, and today the scientist who did that testing took the stand as well. Yes, she did. Um, a lady called Sally Ann Harbison, who's a very senior um, scientist at the ESR lab in New Zealand. Um, and this was, we briefly touched on it um, in my uh, my soliloquy on Friday about the DNA evidence. Um, this was the, uh, the, the extracts and the actual nail samples that went over to New Zealand. Kira's nail samples, I should say, went over to New Zealand in 2004. Um, they were packaged up and sent over there. Um, and both the sort of tubes of liquid, all the extracts that had been previously done and the nails themselves, so ESR could do their own extracts and testing on those. And so um, Ms. Harbison was, was walked through that, um, all, all, the, all those processes, um, this afternoon, um, what they did, um, what the, the, the testing processes were, were, how they actually got um, the nails um, 
to um, New Zealand and what they did with them when they got there. Um, all, all that all that type of continuity stuff again. Um, and as as we touched on last week, uh, they don't find anything um, in terms of a, a, you know, another contributor to um, in Kira's nails and in the other um, extracts. But what the prosecution will say when uh, when all said and done is that that those um, negative results, if you want, are actually a positive for us because there's no sign of any contamination on any of those nails or any of those other um, extracts, um, which which show that this this contamination theory from the uh, from the defence is uh, is fantasy. One of the things that um, Dr. Harbison did say that I think had us in the media room sort of going, what, was uh, when she talked about um, a test that they carried out on AJM42, which is the left middle finger from um, fingernail from Kira Glennon, that um, the prosecution says that when combined with AJM40, the left thumbnail produces this DNA profile, which they say belongs to uh, Bradley Ed- Edwards. Um, basically, she was saying that, because one of the things that they did when they got the exhibits got to ESR was that they tested, they did like a Y chromosome test on the the subsample extracts. I hope I have that right, Brendan. <laughs> on um, the ones that had already been prepared at Pathwest, but then ESR did their own tests on the actual parent exhibits, which is the term that's been quite used in the in the trial so far to to the actual exhibits, because all the other testing has been taken on like tiny subsamples that were created from the original. So anyway, the, um, one of the things that they said is that when they were going through the process of creating their own um, sample from AJM42 was that they they opened up the sealed tube, they swabbed, did a wet swab and a dry swab of the actual nail and inside the tube, and then she said what they did was then they took out the actual fingernail and put it in a sealed plastic bag and then photocopied it and then took it out of the bag and put it back into the plastic tube. And we were like, oh, did we hear that right? Like, and we thought, is that normal? And then um, they sort of went a bit further into it and basically um, I think uh, Brad Hollingsworth sort of asked, um, you know, were these bags clean? Were they sterile? And she said, well, they were clean, but she said she didn't want to say that they were sterile because they resembled little plastic sealed bags that you get in commercial supermarkets, but of course they were ones that only labs use, but she said that's basically what they look like. And then um, when asked why she did that, she said because back in 2004 they didn't have digital cameras, and so we were like, I'm sure digital cameras were around in 2004. We don't know, but that's what what she said. They didn't have digital cameras, so that their practice at the time was to take out an uh, an exhibit, put it in a plastic bag, and then photocopy it, and then put it back in. And even Justice Hall sort of asked questions about that because he thought that sounded a bit strange, but apparently that was the practice at the time. Um, but then um, Mr Hollingsworth did ask, you know, you know, did that affect the test results? And she said no. So that was sort of quite an interesting sort of little part that we were like, oh, didn't realise you did that. But it seemed quite strange to us because she's sort of photocopying if you can sort of visualise that process of, oh, here we go, put it in a bag press like the photocopy machine and then they've got this picture of it and then they put it back into the container or the 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 tube yeah and i i guess this is probably the first time that we've heard about someone actually taking a sample out Out. of its sterile environment and moving it into another place and then popping it back so did they ask whether tweezers were used and were gloves used in this process of taking it out of the tube into a plastic bag back into the tube 
No, um, but I'm sure they will get to that and I'm definitely sure Mr Jovic will ask those questions. Um, but I think, I mean, this this was just before um, sort of uh, proceedings finished today, so I think they sort of only just touched on that as it, as it was beginning. But I ju- we just thought that that was a... You know, an interesting um, sort of little bit, and then there was another section to, in in that sort of line of questioning, which was related to I think they were going through a document of of all the lists of what was on the list um, when they received it from Pathwest, and um, the Brad Hollingsworth was was reading out the list, and then they described something as being in a chili bin. <laughs> so anyone that has Kiwi friends like would know what that means, but anyway. Sort of, it was said, and then sort of a little, a few seconds pass, and then Justice Hall sort of says, "Oh well, you know, you know, it's someone from New Zealand when you're talking about a chili bin." And then there was this sort of light little chuckle in court, like especially from the bar table. And then um, Dr. Harbison was just like, "Oh yes," I, and then I think she was asked, "Can you explain what a chili bin is?" And then she said, "Oh, I believe it's an esky." <laughs> so that was kind of a, a little bit of a light relief in today, which was quite heavy. Um, in terms and taxing, sort of, if you're listening um, intently, like we were, sort of like constantly listening to this, you know, very technical evidence, and then you know a bit of light relief about chili bins. <laughs> so it sounds like it really was one of those very interesting days. There was the ups and the downs, and you know the quite heavy stuff, but also these light moments that you sometimes don't expect yeah. in a trial like this. Well, I mean, it's, we've been talking about expertise science that is probably way above the average uh, man and woman on the street and um, no offense to any dna forensic scientists listening but, uh, but but then we have these critical exhibits being uh, transferred over to new zealand in an esky and then being placed in a sandwich bag and then being placed on a photocopier so um yeah. amidst all this science and all this expertise and 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 technique and technical technique. Um, these, these these little moments that show that these scientists are human, just like the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> and as you mentioned, Tim, um, there was no result from any of these tests that were done in New Zealand in terms of finding a male profile or anything like that. So yeah, we so we were we were running through the, the results in evidence this afternoon. Um, uh, but what we do know from the opening address that Mr. Barbara Gallo gave many, many weeks ago now is that nothing that took the, uh, you know, pointed to a new suspect or anything like that was found in New Zealand. But what they are, they, they are bringing this to the attention, A, to, to, to show the continuity. B, it also shows that, you know, how, how far macro investigators were willing to go to try and get this breakthrough. And see, most importantly, it, it will show the prosecutors say that there was no sign of any contamination on any of these other exhibits, um, including AJM42, which we know is then part of the crucial breakthrough in 2008 when it uh, when it goes on another journey to the UK. Uh, do you know what will be in court tomorrow? Will um, Dr. Harbison be cross-examined? She will. I, 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 quite lengthily uh, if uh, uh, Mr Bloom's uh, example is anything to go by today um, she's obviously in, in person come over from New Zealand so there'll, there'll be quite a, a, a way to go in her um, evidence in chief and then yes and then her cross-examination will, will, will take place. Um, Mr Yovich at one point 
said today that there, he's got no problem with the continuity of the nails actually getting to New Zealand. He's not going to prosecute that. So it'll, it'll just be from the point where the tubes are opened, I suppose, that we'll, they will start off um, when, when she's cross-examined tomorrow. Okay, well, we look forward to um, hearing from you both tomorrow. Thanks both for your time today. Tim and I will be back for tomorrow's podcast along with forensic scientist Brendan Chapman and we'll shoot all your questions through to him then. Chat tomorrow for day 40 of Claremont in Conversation. This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont the trial, follow the live blog, watch the nightly news updates, and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.